Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you would think of us. Lord, and you're such an incredible God, beyond our imagination. And at the same time, Lord, you numbered the hairs on our head. You know every detail of our lives, and you love us. What a great and awesome God you are. We just thank you. We praise you. We praise you. We go to your word right now, that you would be our teacher. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would minister to every heart that is here. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to see you on a Wednesday night. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 2 for Sunday. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be going through the entire chapter. We'll see how that works out. But uh, go ahead and read the entire chapter and be prepared for it. Let me encourage you too. Pray about getting involved. Men's study, women's study, uh, the, the college group, if you're age appropriate for that, the uh, married couples fellowship, the singles. All those are great opportunities for you to not only be ministered to, but for you to use your gift to minister to others. So let me encourage you. Pray about getting involved in those as well. All right. So as we come to tonight's text, we're going to continue to look at the lesson that God's ways are not man's ways. And as we see in Scripture that as we look at King David, though anointed king of Israel, not yet king of Israel, and we see the contrast between him and King Saul, as we've seen the last several weeks. And at first we saw David coming out of obscurity and being used mightily by God. And sometimes, you know, we get used by God in a mighty way, and it's something that's very fruitful and almost immediate sometimes, and we think, well, that's going to be the way life always is. You know, every time I share my faith, people are going to get saved. You know, every time I, you know, just reach out to somebody, God's going to do great and awesome things. I'm never going to have any trials. There's going to be no more struggles in my life. And certainly David starts off as this humble shepherd boy, just faithfully serving in anonymity, known by no one. His own father didn't even call him in when the time came for for Samuel to come and anoint a king amongst his boys. He leaves David out watching the sheep. But it was during that time of anonymity that David became a worshiper of God and he became a man being prepared to be the king of Israel as he was watching over the sheep and slaying the lions and the bears who would come and attack them. We know this young man is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And he has such an incredible, he's an incredible character for us to study in Scripture. A great example that indeed God's ways are not man's ways. Because again, from the physical perspective, this would not be the guy. The guy would be the guy they chose, King Saul. And King Saul was an absolute disaster. Why? Because King Saul was a man that was controlled by his flesh. King Saul was a man who was outwardly good-looking and head and shoulders taller than everybody else, had a wealthy family. David was basically the opposite of that. Though he was good-looking and had wisdom, he was not wealthy and he was not large of stature. So man's way was King Saul, God's way is King David. The Bible says, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Then as we get to know David, we get pretty impressed with the character, the godly character of this man. As he faithfully serves his father, as he lays down his life for the sheep, He's a young man in intimate fellowship with God, most often just worshiping between him and the Lord. And then even after he's anointed by King Saul, he continues to serve in a quiet way. He continues to go out, even anointed king of Israel, and faithfully go out and watch the sheep. Yet his love for God and his heart of worship would soon become known to man. Because when Saul, through rebellion and impatience and disobedience, had caused the kingdom to be ripped from him and the Spirit of God to depart, he was being troubled by a distressing spirit. 
And seeking comfort, he turned and said, I need someone who can bring comfort to me. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a young son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful, skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So David would worship, and the distressing spirit would leave. He became Saul's armor bearer. He was anointed king of Israel. He played that music to comfort, again, this rebellious man Saul. And again, was his armor bearer, which meant he went before him. And yet he would still go home and watch his father's sheep. So he came to the battlefield one day, as we know, and I'm just catching you up. He came to the battlefield one day, being sent by his father to deliver cheese to his brothers. And when he shows up, he finds out this battle lines are drawn, but nobody's moving. This man by the name of Goliath, 10 to 11 feet tall, 620 to 750 pounds, is marching up and down the hill, challenging them. And nobody would move. And then David shows up, the Holy Spirit enters into the camp, and he goes out, and as we saw several weeks ago, he slayed the giant. He was promised Saul's daughter, his wife. Women began to sing names of, songs about him. Saul has slayed his thousands, and David has tens of thousands. Well, it looked like finally David's going to be the guy. Because we see Saul sitting and not fighting, and David is. Saul's afraid, and David is not. Saul no longer has the spirit, David does. Saul will not go out and and face the giant, David defeats him. David goes out, fights the Philistines, wins the great battle. It looks like the pendulum has swung and it's finally going to be the appropriate time to make David king. Because Saul's not doing the job. And Saul no longer has the Holy Spirit. And Saul's own life is a mess, let alone leading anybody else. But you know what? Man's ways are not God's ways. Man's way would be, it's perfect timing. We see it from the outward. It's perfect. This is the guy. This is the time. Let's raise him up. But God had another plan. And this distressing spirit upon King Saul, he became very envious. He became very envious of David. He became became almost intimidated by him and fearful of him. And because of that, he started wanting to find a way to remove this guy who he saw as nothing more than a threat to the throne. So we see Saul's resentment and his persecution to David, and we might think it's unfair. Because what has David done so far? He's played for Saul. He's been faithful. He even went out when, when Saul gave him an unwinnable task. Go out and kill 200 Philistines and bring back their four, 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins. And David went out and killed 200. No matter what he was asked to do, he did it faithfully. This just seems like God's man. Certainly this is God's plan for him to be the king. But Saul, seeing how God's hand was upon him. His wisdom, how his own daughter loved him. He became angry and vengeful, and he plotted to kill David. So God will have to step in now, right, and protect him. And you know what? He does protect him from being killed. But like Job, he didn't preserve much more than that. Because we're going to see tonight, when we get to the end of the text, that David's going to be sent out into exile. But before that happens, we're going to see that he loses much of what is dear to him. Because in the last chapter, a death warrant went out for David's life, and Jonathan and Michael stood up for him, and they you know, tipped him off that, that their father was trying to kill him. And even as he escaped, and even as he got away, and then he fled to, to Ramah, and he was there with Samuel, and he was in the house of the prophets, and everybody that showed up to try to kill David, they began to prophesy. They began to worship the Lord because the Holy Spirit was so thick in that place. God was watching over him. But in the midst of all of that, 
This should have been, from our perspective, the coronation of David. But yet David was not going to stay at prophet school in Ramah. He was going to learn by being out in the desert for as many as 10 years. The anointed king, the faithful man, the most godly man that I can see in Scripture at this point, And yet God still had more he wanted to do in this young man's life to prepare him to be the man of God he wanted him to be. See, often we look at persecution as being unfair, but persecution is often preparation for something greater. And we need to start looking at our lives from that perspective and realizing that times of difficulty didn't slip by God. He didn't just close his eyes for a second and miss it. God allows it to come in our life that our lives might be transformed, that we might become more like Him. And it's often that we grow greater through adversity than we do through victory. So, this faithful, humble servant, this mighty warrior, Israel's champion, the king's armor bearer, the worship leader, man's way should have been on the throne, God's way headed to the desert. Some of you might be here tonight and you feel like you're in the desert. And maybe you are. Or maybe you're headed there. Know that God's going to bring you out the other side more in love with Him. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Man's way, he was surrounded, in our perspective, by those who love him and care for him. Jonathan, Michael, Samuel, Jeff, Jesse, the people who are singing about his victory. God's way, everyone and everything would be removed from David's life. He will be away from his wife, his best friend, his family, his city, his people. All taken away. But you know what has been said? That we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have sometimes. And uh, this is maybe what God is doing in the heart of David is taking away everything. Everything else that could hold him up and prop him up to where he could become a man that was fully reliant upon God. So, I titled the message, Trusting in the Promises of God. Man's ways are not God's ways. Learning to trust in the Lord. Four points. Learning to trust in the Lord even when we don't understand what's going on. Anybody ever been there besides me? I don't get it. Why is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. You know why? Because man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Man looks at the outward things of life and God looks at the spiritual and supernatural things. God wants us to have an eternal perspective. Number two. Learning to trust the Lord as we realize just how fragile our lives really are. Guys, our life is a vapor. We have no promise of tomorrow. And the fact that we could be in the presence of Almighty God in a second ought to impact how we live every moment. Amen? It ought to change our priorities, our passions. Number three, learning to trust the Lord as we must wait upon His direction. We're going to see David waiting by a rock. And you know what? I think a good picture for us that we need to be waiting by the rock. And then lastly, learning to trust the Lord in the midst of great disappointment. Again, remembering that difficulty is not punishment, but it is indeed preparation for something greater. So let's begin looking at the text. Trusting in the promises of God. Man's ways are not God's ways. Learning to trust the Lord even when we don't understand what's going on. Verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth. Now remember, Naoth was a place where so far he had been greatly protected. Many commentators, other people kind of get after David for leaving Naoth. They say that was the place where all the prophets were. 
That was a place where everybody who showed up, the Holy Spirit fell upon and began to prophesy. You know, why did he leave there? You know why? Because God was not going to train him up in the house of the prophets, but again, in the school of the wilderness. And often, you know, some of us, God will raise us up through the prophecy school, and sometimes it's through the desperation school, where we end up realizing that we need him. And again, David leaves there, and I believe, according to God's perfect will, he leaves the presence of the prophets. Now, why did he leave? Because Saul had shown up. And when we left the last chapter, remember Saul was laying on the ground prophesying day and night, it says. But as we've seen of Saul before, he can prophesy one moment and throw spears the next. This is not a guy who, and again, maybe, you know, David's thinking, well, maybe he will turn his life around. And, and we know that he's hoping that, as we're going to see in the rest of the chapter. But he was not going to wait to find out. He'd had spears thrown at him three times already. As we're going to find out tonight, God is either protecting him and Jonathan, which is obviously the case, or this guy just can't throw spears because we have no record of him ever hitting anything. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of king is that? So David realizes, okay, you know what, when he stops worshiping, he might start throwing spears and maybe it's time for me to go. And so David's schooling was now going to come again from a very different place. Guys, we're not all educated the same way. God will teach us things in different ways. Sometimes it's through experience. Sometimes it's through the experience of others. And then it says, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan. Now remember, Jonathan is David's closest friend. He's also the son of Saul. It's amazing the friendship they have. In that Jonathan was next in line from the physical perspective to be the king of Israel. But Jonathan knew after meeting David for but a moment, after seeing him fight with Goliath, that he was not the man, David was the man. And I love Jonathan. Jonathan to me is such a picture of what we ought to be as Christians. You know, he's an example of a guy who could play, you know, I, I heard this analogy of a concert, you know, a, a guy who could sit and play the first violin because he's the best player, but he's willing to play the second. You know, he could be the, the, the person with the limelight on him, but he's willing to be the one in the background. He's gifted enough, but he's humble enough. And that's Jonathan. Because we know he had won a victory already. He'd gone and fought the Philistines with his armor bearer. God had brought a mighty victory by his hand. And yet he wasn't battling with David. He was willing to step aside because he recognized God's hand on David's life. He had no motive. He had no, he had no desire to prop up his name. He just wanted God to be glorified. So he goes to this close friend of his, Jonathan, and we're seeing now finally that David is getting a bit discouraged. He's had spears thrown at him. He had you know, the king show up at his house thinking he was asleep at night drag, to drag his body away and kill him. And so all of this is happening, and David, again, is not, you know, he's not superhuman. He's a man. And look what he says. David says to Jonathan, what have I done? What did I do? Anybody else ever asked that question to God before? What did I do? Did I do something? Did I, what did I do, Lord? Was it this, did I sin, Lord? Is this consequences of my sin? Why is it that your father seeks my life? Jonathan, can you tell me, if, is there something I need to repent of? I'll repent. Is there something I've done? I, I feel like I've been honoring God and look at this mess. Why am I being attacked? David asked the question we all are prone to ask in difficult times. What in the world have I done to deserve this? 
And often we think it must be divine discipline, and sometimes it is. Guys, sometimes we rebel against God, and sin absolutely has consequences. Amen? Amen. And sometimes that's just an absolute fact. But often we can walk in obedience to the Lord, and we can still face trials and difficulties. It's not always punishment or consequences, but it's often preparation. God's not punishing David. He's not punishing David. He's getting him ready for what he has called him to do. You know, it's only when we're in the when you put something in the hottest fire possible that the dross, the waste melts away. You guys were here in Pottersfield Ministry was here. He uses an analogy of how he would take he takes the pot when he's done with it and he sticks it in the kiln and you know, you just get it hotter and hotter till that thing is baked. And he said he imagined himself being in the fire and just screaming in the fire. You know, Lord, help, I can't take it. I'm going to die. And he said, God said to him, promise. (laughs) You know, because the truth is we need to die. Amen. We need to die to ourselves, die to our will. I can't take this anymore. Good. You need to stop taking it. You need to start trusting in the Lord. You need to be broken and humble and desperate for him. And Lord, whatever it takes to bring me there, it is worth it. David is blown away. By the current events of his life, he truly wants to understand if it's a sin he's committed, what has made his father so hungry and so angry, excuse me. Now, you know what? I love this about David, that when seeking godly counsel, he starts off by examining his own heart. What have I done? And you know what? That needs to be the way we always start. It's not what he's done, it's what you've done. Amen? Often we need to come in and say, Lord, what have I, Lord examine my heart. What, what about me needs to change? How do I need to be different? But David doesn't understand, but he's still willing to do whatever it takes to rectify the problem. Verse 2. So Jonathan said to him, by no means. He says, my dad doesn't want to kill you. Now, Jonathan is a godly man, but he's napping at this point. Because he believes the word of his dad. You know, he's half right, because here's what he says. You will not die. He's right, he won't die. But then he says, Indeed, my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. Well, where were you when he was throwing spears, Jonathan? Where were you when he sent the guys to my house in the middle of the, you know, in the early in the morning when they thought I was asleep to drag me out of bed and bludgeon me to death? How come you didn't come clue me in on that, Jonathan? You know why Jonathan didn't know? Now, Jonathan wanted to believe his father because back in 1 Samuel 19, Saul had made an oath with his son that he would not kill David. And it wasn't long after that that he put out a death warrant for him. He said, I won't kill him, I promise you, I won't kill him. And then he put a death warrant out for him. You know what, that's the world we live in. And Saul is a liar. And Saul is a man who is a picture of the flesh. And Saul has one desire, which is to kill the one who he thinks is the threat to his throne. But here's the truth. The one who caused him to be knocked off the throne was Saul. It wasn't David. And the same is true for us. When our walk is a mess, don't blame anybody else. You need to come humble before God and get right with Him yourself. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. Again, we have consequences around us that can stir us up, but how we respond is completely up to us being willing to submit to the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Why 
He says, and why would my father hide this thing from me? It is not so, he says. Why would my dad hide this thing from me that he wants to kill you? Well, let me tell you why. Because, Jonathan, you love David, that's why. And he knows it. And because he knows it, he's not going to tell you. Jonathan was obviously unaware of his father's latest attacks and had no idea. And again, David could have asked him, where were you when all these things happened? So David still doesn't have answers. He still doesn't understand. But you know what? We need to learn to trust the Lord and His promises even when we don't understand. The Bible talks about having the peace that surpasses all understanding. Not the peace that comes from understanding. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding, which means I have peace even though I don't understand. Now the good news is, often we can look back a month a week, a month, a year, five years later, and we will understand. But you know what? Some of it we won't understand until we get to heaven. But you know what? That needs to be okay. We need to say, God, I trust you. God, you know what's best for me. God, you are faithful. I am not. And Lord, I believe whatever I'm going through will be used for your glory if I will simply let it. And so we need to get to that place where we quit questioning God and we start trusting him. Trust the Lord. Trust Him with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Always He will direct your paths. You know, trust in the Lord. Give your life completely to Him. The good news is that God's plan for your life cannot be thwarted by the world or the enemy. The only thing that can thwart God's plan for your life is your own rebellion. You, you, the world can't keep it from happening. The enemy can't keep it from happening because God's greater. But you can choose to walk away from what God desires to do in your life. Lord, help us to trust you. So learning to trust the Lord, even we don't understand what's going on. Number two, as we realize just how fragile our lives really are, there is but one step between me and death. Verse three, then David took an oath again. Took an oath, a vow before, you know, hey, John, let me just tell you, Jonathan, before almighty God, let me explain to you what's been happening. Because obviously you don't know. And he begins to tell him, again, taking this oath. And he says, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. So Jonathan's lack of knowledge of his father's thoughts and actions shows just how close he and David were, even to the people outside. They knew if they attacked David, they might as well attack Jonathan too. That's a sign of friendship, you guys. Attack one, attack all. We're people that love you enough to stand with you. I'm going to quote this verse again later. But the Bible says, you know, a friend is a friend at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. You find out who those who really love you, who really want to stand with you are, when things aren't perfect. They come alongside you anyway. They love you anyway. They reach out to you. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit to call you, to encourage you, to minister to you. And you know, we all need that, don't we? We need godly friends like that. And you know what? Jonathan was just such a man to David. But it says at the last half of that verse, But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. This reveals that David is, you know, being a man, is discouraged and has come to the deep realization how fragile his life really is. You know, Saul's tried to kill me over and over and over and over and over. And you know what? He's not going to stop until he's successful. All I have to do is, is 
not pay attention for one moment and I will be dead. You guys, this is something we all need to remember. I underline that there is but a step between me and death in my Bible. And the reason I do is because we need to remind it all the time that our life is but a vapor. That we're but one step from eternity. That we have no promise of tomorrow. I went to my son's uh, seven-on-seven football last night. He plays for Monta Vista Christian. And after the game, the coach wanted to talk to me. And I went down to talk to him. And, and uh, I just love this guy. I pray for him. His name's Andre Dobson. He's just building godly men of character. I praise the Lord for him. He spends as much time with my son almost as I do. And so I just, it's important to me that he be a godly man of character. A close friend of his who plays uh, professional football uh, was coming to Monta Vista to do some drills and stuff with the guys. And the day before he came, he dropped dead. 30 years old, three small children, had a brain tumor they didn't know about, and he just died. And I was talking to Coach Dobson about it, and he could rejoice because on Monday, the day after it happened, he was in the weight room with the whole football team, and he started to share with them, and he started to weep. And then he felt like the Lord put it on his heart to speak with great boldness to these 80 or 90 high school kids about their desperate need for the Lord and that they have no promise of tomorrow. And at the end of the message, seven of those high school kids gave their life to Jesus Christ. Now that's what I like about football practice. When you got someone preaching the gospel there, amen? That's what it's all about. That's why my kids go to school there. Because I want that to happen. And praise God that what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. And God allowed this man to die, and he died right on time. We don't die too soon. Amen? Amen. This guy's not bummed that he's not playing pro football anymore. He's in the presence of Almighty God. But we do need to pray for his wife and his children. But he called his wife and told him, I was sharing this story about your husband, and seven of our teenagers came to know the Lord, and his wife said, if that's the only reason it happened so soon, it was worth it. Amen. Amen. It's having that eternal perspective. It's getting beyond the fact, look, our life is but a vapor, you guys. We don't get any do-overs. Amen? Amen. There's no reincarnation, and aren't you glad? One time on this rock is enough, right? (laughs) I don't want to come back anymore. No thanks. Especially not as a cow or a grasshopper or anything else, right? (laughs) But the point is that while we're here, let's be busy about His work. We got this, we're living for that dash between the year we die and the year we're born and the year we die, and we only have that much time to live for him. And David is starting to realize, look, you know what? There's one step between me and death. I could be gone. And you know what? If anything, it creates a greater urgency in David's heart to walk in the center of God's will. But he's still holding out and hoping there can be restoration between him and Saul. And so he's going to take an opportunity through Jonathan, to see if there's any way there can be restoration and he can go back and serve at the feet of this very guy who's tried to kill him multiple times. This is a man who's got his life submitted completely to the Lord. Look at verse 4. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you desire, I will do it for you. Before he was rejecting the fact that his father wanted to kill him, now David, with an oath, swears to him, Your dad has been wanting to kill me. And my life is so close to death. And here's the heart of a friend. He's got the word of his father and the word of his father who's not walking with God. And he's got the word of this man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he has a choice to choose to believe one of them. And he chooses to believe David. Now, who do you believe? God's word or the world? When God's word tells you that joy comes from walking with Almighty God or when the world tells you it's by piling up as many you know, possessions as you possibly can. Which one of those things are you believing? 
Whose pattern are you following after? Jonathan has a choice to make, and he says, you know what? Whatever you need, I'm here. You're a man filled with the Holy Spirit. God has spoken to, you, to, to me through you, and I believe you. How can I help? Now watch. David's going to devise a plan to find out Saul's real heart. Look at verse 5. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. The new moon is the beginning of a new month in the Jewish calendar. And so what they would do is they'd have special feasts and sacrifices set aside for the new moon. The head of the family would be there. In this case, the king, he would expect all of his family members to be there, as well as all his you know, major leaders within his government, if you will. So David should have been there twice, because David is his son-in-law married to his daughter Michael, and David is one of the military leaders in his army. And so the feast is coming, it's the new moon, and David should be sitting there ready to have another spear thrown at him. And you know, so far he keeps showing up, so Saul thinks he's going to be there. So Saul, this new moon has happened, and David is supposed to be there. It says in Numbers, Also in the day of your gladness and the solemn days, in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over sacrifices of peace offerings, that may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. So at the beginning of every month, they were to make these sacrifices unto the Lord to remember God. So it says there, at the end of the second half of that verse, And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. Now the sacrifices were eaten for two days, and on the third day, whatever was left was offered completely to the Lord. And so he's basically not going to show up for the feast at all for two days, and see how Saul responds. If Saul is willing to have restoration, he will not have a problem with it. Okay, David's not here. Why isn't he here? If he's looking to throw another spear at him and he doesn't show up, we'll find out. And he sends Jonathan to go back and sit with his father and find out just what's in his heart. Verse 6. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem's city, For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of the family. Now again, the families would gather together. David was from Bethlehem. That's why it's called the city of David. Again, just as a side note, we know the son of David would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was born in the city of David. That's not by chance. Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. That's good stuff. Bible rocks, okay? Now, he says to him, if he asked, tell him I went back to Bethlehem to be with my family for the yearly sacrifice. Verse 7, if, the, if he says, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. David is a man of great wisdom. And he knows, you know, I'm going to go. And he does, I believe he does go. He goes and he makes sacrifice with his family. And on the third day, he's going to come back and wait to hear from Jonathan what the response was of King Saul as to whether or not he can go back into the city and resume his life there or if he's going to have to be on the run from Saul until he dies. You know, out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know what's in someone's heart? Listen to the words that come out of their mouth. And they're going to sit back and watch King Saul's heart pour out of his mouth. Look at verse 8. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? 
David reminds Jonathan of the covenant they have. And then he says to him, look, if I've blown it, instead of waiting for your dad to kill me, just kill me right now. And if you're on his side and you're believing him, just strike me down dead. But if we're going to walk together, if we're going to be in this covenant together, if I have sinned, don't, don't bring me to your father to kill me. Go ahead and do it now. You know what? He's basically saying that he would rather be judged by a godly brother than an ungodly king. And I believe that should be the case. I would much rather have a godly brother come to me in love and bring about, you know, shine the light on the sin that's in my life, do it in love, than have me get busted and have to stand before a judge. Amen? Amen. Because you know what? That harms the name of Christ. And so I would much rather have someone who loves me in the Lord be the tool God uses. Verse 9. But Jonathan said, far be it from you. He said, I'm going to kill you. What are you talking about? Far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? He's saying, you know, if your dad's going to be the one to kill me, just going, look, I'm not going to let my dad kill you. That's not what's on my heart. I'm not a part of a plot to kill you, David, even though I would be king if you died next. That's not my heart at all. My heart is to honor God, and I see God's calling upon your life. And he says, if I believe my dad's going to come after you, I would warn you. And you know what? We're going to get to see Jonathan fulfill those words. Verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? Okay, you go in and you find out. How are you going to come tell me? Because if you come back out to tell me, he's probably going to have people follow you thinking you know where I am. Seeing as you're my close friend. So how in the world are you going to get the word to me? They needed to come up with a plan, come up with a way to communicate. Verse 11, And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Now he didn't go out to the field to kill David, but to devise a plan for his safety. So learning to trust in the Lord, even when you don't understand what's going on, and as we realize just how fragile our lives really are, David, realizing his life is but a vapor, wants to be cautious, wants to be faithful to the calling God has on his life. God's anointed him to be king. And he want, and again, his heart is, all right, I want to know, am I supposed to go back or does God have another plan? That's a good thing, to wait upon the Lord and to seek his face and to know his heart. Thirdly, as we wait, must wait upon his direction. I know that for most of you, that's like the easiest thing to do, but... For me, that's such a hard thing. Look at verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is a good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so much more to Jonathan. You know what he says? Look, if he tells me good and I don't come bring you the message, then God strike me down. He said, you know, my heart wants to be faithful to be, you know, I'm a kindred spirit with you. And when I hear from the Lord, I'm going to be a messenger of the Lord. When I see what God's plan is, when I see what happens with my father, I will come and tell you. And if I do not, then Lord strike me down. Then he says, second half, but if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Again, This is a true brother and friend because he's not just giving advice, but he's willing to stand in the gap. He's willing to go face angry, bitter Saul. 
Now, in his mind, he's still hoping. My dad told me he wouldn't do that anymore. I've heard the word from David. I'm going to go find out for him, and I'm going to be a, you know, a messenger to him of whatever I see in my father. And again, he's letting him know, if I do not honor God, if I do not come back and give you the truth, then may the Lord bring his judgment upon me. You know what? He understands that David is indeed God's man. Verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You know what? Jonathan asks David's mercy upon his family when he rises to power. Now this is a guy who truly believes David's going to be king. Oh, by the way, David, when you become king, and even show me kindness, but even after I'm gone, will you minister to my family? Now, David is hiding. David has no friends. David is out in the bushes somewhere, afraid of being killed, and yet Jonathan recognizes the calling on his life. God's not through with you, my friend. God's going to do great things, and when he does, all I want you to do is remember me and remember my family. And minister to them. You know, because in those days, the guy who was in line to be king, the guy who became king would usually go out and kill his whole family just so nobody else tried to rise up and become king. And Jonathan just saying, when you become the king and you should, just remember my family. Boy, I love this picture. I love this heart of submission that we see in young Jonathan. He confirms his confidence in God's hand being upon David. And in those days, he knew what could usually happen. Jonathan was able to play first chair, but he was indeed willing to play second. He was willing to stand down for the man God had truly called. God's calling is irrevocable. Sometimes we go through difficulties in life. Things happen and we feel disqualified or things beyond our control. And we feel like God can't use us anymore. But that's just not true. That's not the God that we serve. So Jonathan does indeed make a covenant. Look at verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. He's saying, if I am unfaithful to the promise I've made to David, then let David's enemies come and strike me down. Verse 17. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. Again, that sacrifice is starting tomorrow. I need to leave you here. I need to head up and go sit down at the table with my father. And let's see what God's going to do. What he's going to reveal is in the heart of my father when I sit down next to him. And again, it says that he and David loved each other. But love should be proven out in much more than words. It should be seen in actions. And we see in David's heart here, he doesn't just say, I love you. He's willing to go and put himself in a dangerous place on behalf of his brother who he cares for deeply. Verse 19. And when you, stayed, when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on that day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Now, what he tells him is at the end of three days, and my personal opinion because I don't believe a spirit-filled man would lie, and he's going to tell Saul that David went to Bethlehem. I believe that David went to Bethlehem. He was there two days. Then he came back to the place on the third day, and he's going to be there waiting when Jonathan comes out, and he gets the good news or the bad news. And really not good news or bad news, but just God's direction. What we perceive as bad news 
is often God's highest. And we need to change our perspective. Now, it's interesting, though, the remain by the stone Ezel. The word Ezel means departure. It also means the stone of the way. So it's kind of like a milestone along the way that gave direction to people as they were traveling. Now, I love that he's waiting by the stone of the way. Because who's the rock? Jesus Christ. And who's the way? Jesus Christ. And who gives direction to our life? Jesus Christ. And we're in a mess and we're struggling and we don't know where to turn. The best place to stay is to stand on the rock, to stand by the stone, to draw near unto the Lord and wait for him to give you direction. And I love the Old Testament pictures of New Testament truths. So David was to wait there. Now understand, for David, waiting not easy. You know, David was an active guy, a military leader, a man of action, and he's told to wait. He went and made the sacrifice, he comes back, and he has to sit and wait by the rock. We'll talk about that more as we get to the end of the chapter. But you know what? I find it interesting that we see people waiting on the Lord throughout Scripture. And we need to learn that lesson. To be still, to know that He's God. We're in a hurry. God's always right on time. He knows what He's doing. He's faithful. Let's trust Him. Let's walk with Him every day. He'll show us what to do. He'll give us direction for our lives. Then it says, So go and wait by the stone. And here's the way I'm going to communicate with you. Verse 20 to 22. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on the side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. So here's what's going to happen. I'm, he's in hiding, waiting by the rock. In case somebody follows Jonathan out, if it's bad news, he's just going to come and start shooting these arrows. And depending on where he shoots them will be a message to David as to whether or not he's welcome back into Israel, welcome back into the palace, welcome back to serve alongside Saul, welcome back to be with his wife and his family, and back to the ministry he believes God's called him to at that moment. Or if they're shot to the side, then it means, or they're shot, if they're shot to the side, he goes back. If they're shot beyond him, then it means he is to move on. And I love the last part of verse 22 because it says, Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. Saul couldn't send anyone away. Only the Lord could. We can look and blame it on our boss, but God may move us for a reason. We can blame it on our health, whatever it might be. We can look at our circumstances of life and want to find somebody to get after instead of just trusting that God is faithful, He's sovereign, He's in control, He knows what He's doing. This is a crucial time in David's life. Either he'd be welcomed back or everything would change. Either he'd go back to his life, be close to being, back, you know, being on the throne, the thing that God had called him to do, or God had something completely different in mind for him. Verse 23. As for the matter which you have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. He makes this covenant bond as what we've discussed, the Lord be between you and me forever. We make this bond before the eyes of Almighty God. If I break it, may the Lord bring judgment upon me. The Lord be between us forever. Verse 24. Then David hid in the field. 
And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by his side. But David's place was empty. Now, the king comes in, and when he does, everybody stands to their feet. Mentions Jonathan Abner was the commander-in-chief. We'll see him more later as we move through the Bible. The commander-in-chief of Saul's army. They all rise up because the king came in. They're all sitting down. Saul sits down, looks around the table, no doubt with a spear nearby, and sees no David. Where did David go? How come he's not here? Now, he's about to give himself away. We're going to find out what's in the heart of this man. How is he going to respond? How was his heart to be revealed? Verse 26. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day. For he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. Now, unclean meant he had done something that made him ceremonially unclean. And he was forbidden to come in and eat of the feast until he had cleansed himself. And so we see a little bit of patience by Saul that he's willing to sit back and say, Well, maybe he's not coming yet. Now, what's interesting is that he believed David would follow the law. But here's the hypocrite Saul observing a religious feast waiting to kill the guy God's chosen to be king. You know, that happens throughout Scripture. You see, when Jesus is being crucified, they wanted to hurry up and crucify him so they could celebrate Passover. we got to hurry up and kill him so we don't defile Passover, but Passover, the blood being put on the shape of the cross, the blood of the Lamb, And the blood had to not only be spilled, but applied. Guys, we can't just believe in Christ. It must be applied to our life. They took the blood. They applied it in the shape of the cross. That was Passover when the angel of death passed over and they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. And they were trying to get, hurry up and get Jesus crucified so they could celebrate Passover. Amazing. King Saul's sitting here at a religious feast, you know, wanting to kill the very one that God had anointed to be king. And Saul knew it and that's why he wanted him dead. So now, verse 27. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Now understand, if you just read that, you don't think much of it. Son of Jesse was kind of a slap. Because he was not referring to him as his son-in-law. He was reminding him of his poor beginning. He's not acknowledging him as the son-in-law that, that belongs to his family. He's reminding him all of the, poor, you know, the shepherd boy that he was. And he's you know, kind of deriding him. Now verse 28. So Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brothers commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in the eyes, please let me, in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. This seems reasonable. You know, it's the time of the feast. He wanted to go celebrate it with his family. My whole family is getting together. So he went back there to celebrate. And that's the reason that he's not here. And not only that, he asked permission of the king's own son if he could go. That's why I believe that that's exactly where David went. Because I do not believe that Jonathan would lie being filled with the Holy Spirit. So how is Saul going to respond? This seems reasonable, right? Oh, okay, I understand. He went to be with his family. No problem. Well, let's see, verse 30. 
Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's his wife. He's talking about his wife. He's slamming his wife and his son all in one sentence. You know, I don't mean to be, I won't be as graphic as, as the text really is because you need to understand how vile this was. You got to realize we're sitting at a religious feast. Can you imagine we're in an agape feast? We're all sitting at the agape feast. We're hanging out together and we're honoring the Lord. We just had communion. And then my son doesn't show up and I sit to one of my other sons and I start cursing because that's what he did. He basically refers to his mother as a prostitute, but that's not the word he uses. Very vile. This is what he's saying to his son. Why? Because David went to Bethlehem to sacrifice to the Lord there and to worship God with his family. That's why. King Saul. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, and also out of the overflowing of man's heart, his mouth speaks. And we're finding out just what's in this guy's heart. You know what I find interesting? When we have a problem with our enemy, we often go home and take it out on our family. You know, we're struggling with our boss at work, and we're angry, and we're bitter, and we're unforgiving. Who do we rip on when we get home? You know, the poor kid who happens to be there. The, the wife. You know, we take it out. You know what? When someone's bitter and hard, it spills out on the people they love. And, you know, in Saul's case, I don't know that he loves anybody. I don't have any proof of that. But here's King Saul. King Saul just starts ripping on his son, and out of his mouth, this, he's cursing the people closest to him. And he basically also calls his son an illegitimate son. And I'll tell you the word. The word is bastard. That's what he calls his son. Nice dad. King of Israel. Your mom's a prostitute. You're about, that's it. That's what I think of you. Why? Because David went and sacrificed to the Lord in Bethlehem. I can see why you're so upset, King Saul. He was thinking, you know what? I'm 0 for 3 with that guy. I got another spear. I was just looking for another shot. I can't throw it to Bethlehem. Where is he? You know what he's really doing is he's disowning his son for his allegiance to David. He's just telling him, okay. You know, men are going to conclude that your mother was a prostitute and that you were of illegitimate blood because you're not going to be the next king. And they'll think you're not the next king because you're not related to me. So this is what you've done by siding with David. And the cursing is just flowing out of his mouth. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not, do you not... Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? What he's saying again is people are going to shame your mom. They're going to shame her because they're going to think that you are fathered by somebody else when you don't become the king because my son would become the king and you won't be. This is what you are. And he's blasting his son and he's tearing down his wife all at the same time. Verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You know what's interesting? Saul's only worried about Jonathan getting the kingdom. Uh, Saul, when did it become your kingdom? It's the Lord's. It was never yours. It was always God's. And this is why Jonathan is not holding tightly to it because he realizes indeed that it does belong to the Lord. So he's promoting his own kingdom. He's bitter because he's got bitterness in his heart toward David. He's pouring it out on his family. Verse 32. 
Now I love this. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Now you think Saul's going to go, Well, yeah, you're right, nothing. Never mind. You know, that's not what's going to happen. This is boldness, isn't it? This is a great deal of bravery. But isn't it interesting? It's the same question that David asked. What have I done? And Jonathan asked his father, What has he done? And there really is no true and honest accusation. But Jonathan is a friend at all times. And he's a brother who's born for adversity. And he boldly stands up for his brother and friend. And look what happens. He gets the David treatment. Look at verse 33. <laughs> then Saul cast his spear at him to kill him. He's an equal opportunity spear-throwing guy who misses people. <laughs> he just misses everyone. That cracks me up. No wonder you're not the mighty warrior. You can't even, no wonder you didn't fight Goliath. You can't hit a guy sitting five feet from you at a table. How are you going to fight a guy who's 11 foot 750 and running at you with a sword in his hand? No wonder you ran away. But the truth is that God was protecting Jonathan because we're indestructible until God's through with us. Amen? The enemy can't do anything until God says so. Can you imagine though coming to an agape feast? And I get mad at one of my kids and I pull out a gun and shoot at him. This is the equivalent. Right? Can you imagine? You know what? I'm, I'm, boom! Right? You know, I, this is what, this is the equivalent. He picks up a spear and throws it at his son. This guy doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's lost his mind completely. Completely. He's out of control. And he's after David. But again, he's 0 for 4. Not very good with throwing a spear. Verse 34. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. Notice that Saul was angry because he wanted his way. And Jonathan was grieved because his dad was acting contrary to the Lord's way. You notice there's righteous anger and unrighteous anger. You notice that he responds because he's grieved at what he sees in his own father. So learning to trust in the Lord, even as we wait upon his direction... As he's waiting by the rock. Now this means, okay, I've got to go bring this message now. I've got to take this message down to my dear friend. I know my father's heart now. There's no doubting it. There's no questioning it. Verse 35. So now we're going to see learning to trust in the Lord in the midst of great disappointment. Verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and the little lad was with him. Now, I want you to step aside for a second and think about David. David comes, he gets to the rock, he's waiting there, and he's looking on the horizon for Jonathan to show up. And in the meantime, what do you think he might have been doing for the last three days? Praying, seeking God's face, calling out to the Lord, no doubt worshiping because David was a worshiper. You can almost hear his thoughts and prayers. The, the arrows can't be shot past. There's no way that's what God wants. Because if that happened, I mean, Samuel anointed me king. God's given me victory. You know, I'll lose my home, my wife, my family. I won't be able to see Jonathan anymore. This couldn't be God's plan. It must be the Lord's will that I stay. It has to be. There's no way that God could have something else for me. I mean, he's anointed me. How can I be king of a place I'm not, I don't live? 
How, how can I minister? How can I be a husband? That's what God's heart is for me. Certainly, when those arrows are shot, they'll be shot to the side. There's no way those arrows could be shot past. That couldn't happen. That can't be, possibly be, God's will. Just your pastor's supposition, I imagine his heart beating in his chest as he looked up and saw Jonathan approaching. He sees Jonathan coming and he imagines in his mind, this is the moment right now. One of two things is going to happen. I'm going to go back. I'm going to be back with my family. I'm going to be back in the environment that I love and where I'm comfortable and where God's going to use me. I'm going to go back or I'm going to be banished where I will see them. Maybe never. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. I don't know what's in front of me. He knows right that moment his life is going to be radically changed. Imagine as as it says in verse 36, Then he said to the lad, now run and find the arrows which I shoot. Now, what's interesting is at that moment, the the, the lad's running and Jonathan's bringing back the bow. And David, I imagine, is standing off to the side somewhere from the rock, peeking out to watch where those arrows are going to go. And no doubt going, go to the side, go to the side, go to the side, right? Don't shoot him past him. No way, you can't, no way. And then imagine as he lets go of that first arrow and he sees it flying in the air and going past the young man and landing in front of him. I imagine him even thinking, oh, that was a mistake. You know, Jonathan just pulled a little too hard on the bow that time. He didn't really mean it. Next time, he'll shoot it to the side and then two more arrows being shot past the lad. And imagine David's heart just sinking. But you know what? We need to come to the place that when the arrows are shot past, when we're disappointed because things don't go the way we expect or we want, that we trust that God knows what he's doing. Amen. God, you know. Okay, arrows are shot past. That means you got something else for me. you got some things you want to teach me. You've got a, someone else you want me to minister to. David could have, oh Lord, how can this be? But watch how he is faithful. Look at that second half of 36. Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran and he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad, Is it not the arrow beyond you? Now the words confirm what David had already seen, that Saul did not respond well, and that the Lord was sending him away. And it was not punishment, but indeed would be preparation. Verse 38, And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go carry them into the city. So the lad gathers up the arrows. He heads back into the city. And now David and his dear friend Jonathan are going to have a moment to talk to each other. And then they're going to be separated, maybe never seeing each other again. We do know they will see each other about 10 years later, not long before Jonathan's death. But look at verse 41. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together. But David more so. You know, David comes out and he treats Jonathan like the prince, even though David was the king. And he treated him like a servant and he fell on his face. And look at the humility and the brokenness in a man who's disappointed. You know, Look at this contrast. Saul tries to kill his son, and David shows him affection. Saul curses his son, and David blesses him. What a, different, what a contrast between the world and the Lord, and the way that we should respond. 
in just such times. They wept together, but David more so. Why did David grieve more so? Because David knew that everything was about to change. He would no longer be in the king's court. He would no longer be in the military. He would no longer be able to see his wife. He would see Samuel no more. He would see Jonathan no more. His whole life was changing and his heart was broken. Guys, sometimes when God directs us in a new path, it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt a little. It doesn't mean we're not going to grieve. It doesn't mean we're not going to miss people. It doesn't mean God may send us halfway around the world and, you know, oh, well, I don't miss. No, we, we are going to miss people because we love people. We love each other. We love our family. We love our friends. And every time I've left a ministry, it's hurt. Every time. When I left the youth group in San Jose, I was supposed to give a 45-minute message. I got up and cried for 10 minutes and sat down. It never happened. It didn't happen. The, the guy who was taking my place just took over. Game. I said, I love you guys. I sat down. And you know what? That's okay because... We have a love for each other. And David loves Jonathan. It's his brother in the Lord. And his heart was broken because he knew he would see him no more. Last verse. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Now what I love about this is, you know what Jonathan's saying? Even though we're going to be apart, we're still going to be one with the Lord. Even though you may be in a different place, I'll still be praying for you. You can still pray for me. Even though you leave and we may not see each other every day, we still have the Lord in common. And last part of the verse, so he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Now don't read too much into this. Don't put, don't, don't make a doctrinal statement out of it. But I do find it interesting that he arose on the third day from the rock that pointed the way and went out to do what God called him to do. I just like that. Third day, you know, the rock did roll away on the third day, amen? And Jesus Christ was risen. And again, I, you know, just something to point out. I wouldn't make a doctrinal thesis out of it. But so, it's, so we see here that Jonathan goes home and David's life is going to radically change. But in the midst of disappointment, we need to know it's not for punishment, but for preparation. We need to know that God is faithful, that He's sovereign, that He's in control, that He loves you. He that knows you best loves you most, and He knows what's best for you. And we need to get to the place where we trust Him. Where Job said, though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. If He takes everything I have, it's okay, because He's all I need. You know what? It would be radical to see what would happen if we got to the place where we could fully trust the Lord with our lives completely. You know what? We need to learn to trust in His promises. Let me give you a few and then we'll close in prayer. The Bible says He will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible tells us that He is our Father and we are His children. That you are His treasured possession. That His grace is sufficient to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That He wants to be glorified in and through you. That He loves you more than you will ever know. Those are promises. And that one day you're going to be in His presence forevermore where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. He'll wipe away every tear and we will be with Him forevermore. May we walk in the understanding of the promises of Almighty God that they will never be taken away. It ought to bring a great amount of of joy when the disappointment of temporal comes. Remember the eternal and trust that God knows what He's doing. So in closing, trusting in the promises of God. Man's ways are not God's ways. Learn to trust in the Lord even when you don't understand. Learn to trust in the Lord as we realize just how fragile our lives really are. Learn to trust in the Lord as we must wait upon His direction. And lastly, learn 
to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of great disappointment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are such a faithful God. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't map out our lives because they would be a disaster. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who leads our every step and we will simply obey. Lord, you're so faithful. You're such a wonderful God. Lord, you look back at forks in the road and you see how you've guided us and all the wonderful things that have happened because of it. And Lord, I pray we would never fight against your direction, but Lord, we'd be submitted to it. Lord, when the arrows are shot past, Lord, I pray we would not be disappointed, but we would rejoice in the fact that you know what you're doing. Lord, we love you. We praise you. I pray for those who might be in a, a time of desert right now, that you would refresh them with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.